Dear Rudder Digest, September 8th, 2021. Phlebotinum! Say that fast five times. The inspiration. Image. A blackboard sticker on a door that says, Look closely at the present you are constructing. It should look like the future you are dreaming. Alice Walker. Every semester, I choose a new quote to put on my blackboard sticker on my office door. I work in the basement at the terminus of a hallway. Very few people ever go down there, but if they do, I want them to see something that will make them feel hopeful about the future, specifically theirs. Most quotes that I've put up become invisible to me when I come into work every day. They're just part of the hallway, and I don't think about them. This one, I think about every time I walk down that hallway. I ask myself, does the present I'm constructing look like the future I'm dreaming? I mean, yes. It's a hard present, a tough present, because it requires a lot of hard work to build the life that I want. At the same time, it is the life that I want. I'm doing work I'm excited about, work that I truly believe is important. I live with a man who is, you will probably not be surprised to learn, specifically made to delight me. My work, not the day job, but the work, is important to me and deeply meaningful. I'm not where I want to be physically, but that's a change in progress. The thing is, some things are always going to need work, and that's okay. Acknowledging how your life does look like the future you're dreaming and being grateful to yourself for making that happen is a hell of a start. The Fat Orange Cat I love the smell of lilacs. It's my favorite floral scent, and it's only really around during the spring, so I try to snatch up all of the car fresheners and essential oils and scented candles when they show up and get enough to last me throughout the year. When you're writing prose, it's really easy to forget how things look, how they smell, how the environment feels. At least, for me it is. It's also really easy to get lost in so much description that the story of momentum falters. Straddle that chasm by casually inserting the smell of lilacs into your story. The Trope Phlebotinum In a Buffy the Vampire Slayer commentary, Joss Whedon credited Buffy and Angel writer David Greenwalt with coming up with the idea of phlebotinum, which is the mysterious item-slash-substance that, when applied, prevents your reader from getting too bogged down in how things work to enjoy your story. Phlebotinum is most useful in fantasy or science fiction, where what you're talking about doesn't actually exist, so you can't research it, so you just make it up. What's the substance our hero needs to deactivate the poison the villain put in the water supply? Phlebotinum! What's the magic gem that, when put into the phlebotonizer, fuels the spaceship? Phlebotinum! What's the ancient dust that, when inhaled, makes zombies of us all? Phlebotinum! Is that a bad thing? No! Look, there's a point where it just doesn't matter. You're there to tell a story, not to build scientifically sound theoretical models. Wherever there's a part of your story that needs a thing in order to keep things going, you create a piece of phlebotinum, name it whatever, shove it in the plot hole, and keep going. Your reader came to hear a story about your characters. If a little carefully applied phlebotinum here and there gets things out of the way so that your characters can do a thing, awesome. Go for it. The question. My question is about using a pen name. There is part of me that wants to use a pen name. 
I will soon be getting divorced and don't want that asshole's last name to be the one that people attribute to me and my writing. But as a child, I wanted to change my name because my father was an asshole too. I thought about using my mother's maiden name, which I love and comes from a well-loved family. But I think I'll be starting small and doing local things and know that people know me as name redacted. I have other factors at play that cloud the issue. Do I just resign myself to being stuck with an asshole's last name or take on an unfamiliar name that means something to me? NR. Dear NR, I feel your pain. I started doing professional work under my maiden name because I wanted that sunlight between my personal identity and my professional one, but then I got divorced and it all got smashed up into one thing, and honestly, that was fine too. I've also written under a pseudonym because I was trying out a different genre. I know writers who have chosen pseudonyms and other writers who have written under their real names, and in the end, it's about what makes you feel most comfortable. It is, I'm not going to lie, a little weird to be Lucy at an event where people know me as Lonnie, but you get used to it pretty quick, and so do they. What you won't ever get used to is seeing some asshole's name on your work, and you know how I know that? I read your letter. Use a name that means something to you. Jennifer Cruzy got the Cruzy from her grandmother. You could do worse than to emulate Jen. In the end, to go with a pen name or not is really a personal choice. One isn't better than the other. But when you love one name and resent the other, I say, go with love. Love is almost always the right star to follow. Everything, L. Footnote. I'm trying to protect anonymity, so unless someone tells me it's cool to share their name, I don't. Or I try not to. I know I did it before, but only because I was distracted and I forgot, and I'm really sorry about it. I am trying to do better. The Practical I watched Coraline this week. I may be on something of a Neil Gaiman kick now that I'm doing endless podcasts about the Sandman comics. I've always been a fan, but now that I'm critically engaging with his solo work, I'm seeing things that I find fascinating. One of those things is the Other Mother, also known as the Beldum. I'm finding, as I dig in, that Gaiman is a master at taking things that have existed in our stories forever, pulling them through the dark depths of human psychology, and planting them in his stories in a way that I find satisfyingly resonant. I did some research online, but couldn't find anything that A, cited their sources, or B, wasn't originated in talking about Coraline. But from what these sources say, the Beldum is a fey creature from Romanian folklore who shapeshifts into a spider form, and like the witch from Hansel and Gretel, lives in the forest and steals and eats children. What I'm learning from studying Gaiman is that these stories have survived the centuries for a reason, and his plucking these figures from these stories and giving them modern context is a fascinating way of examining those reasons. It's part of what makes his work so satisfying. He's not making it all up. He's recontextualizing what he's found that fascinates him. At least I think so. The bottom line here is that originality in storytelling doesn't come from the things we talk about. It comes from how we talk about them. It comes from genuine fascination, wonder, horror, delight. That's what makes you the writer you want to be. You can write a love triangle, or children lost in the woods fable, or a sci-fi story about robots turning on their creators. How are you going to tell those stories, and why do you want to? Those are the questions that matter. Maybe it's like taffy pulling? I might be onto something here, but I'm not really sure yet. Saturday, September 11th. Dear writer, 
I talked a little bit about Neil Gaiman's writing in this week's free letter, and I find myself really interested in talking about that more because I'm trying to figure out how I might do what he does in my work. Not necessarily pulling from old folktales, although I love that, but pulling the thing I'm fascinated with through its context and bringing that context into my story, where I recontextualize it, making something new and old at the same time. That might not make sense. Let me go a little deeper into what I'm talking about. I'm still thinking this through. It's a bit underbaked at the moment. First, I love Oscar Wilde's throwaway quip, talent borrows, genius steals. Most writers are terrified of that idea because plagiarism. Look, I know people who have been legit plagiarized and it sucks and it's wrong. But plagiarizing is actually copying and pasting someone else's work and selling it as your own. That's not what I'm talking about. But the fear of accidentally plagiarizing, which you cannot accidentally do, is so rampant among writers that I think we need to talk about it a bit. The only way you can accidentally plagiarize is if you have a photographic memory. And if you have a photographic memory, you can't accidentally plagiarize because you have a photographic memory, which means you also remember where you read the thing. So if you do not fully intend to plagiarize, stop worrying about it. You can't do it. Now, are there resonances you can pull from existing material that you don't mean to? Sure. I have a moment in a book where one character shoots another with a tranquilizer and the shot character looks down at his gut and says, you bloody bitch, which is resonant of a moment from the doppelgangland episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Did I realize that before the book was published? No. Is it plagiarism? No. Because it's an entirely different story with entirely different characters, and that one resonant moment is not a big deal. That's the kind of thing you can and will do accidentally, and it is not a crime. I once had someone reach out to me and ask if it was okay if their main character hit a man breaking into their house with a frying pan because Jennifer Cruzy had done it in Agnes and the Hitman. Yeah, it's okay. Jen wasn't the first to do that either. Okay, so now that we're over, I hope, our fear of accidentally plagiarizing, I want to talk about Neil Gaiman and William Shakespeare, both of whom have made a career of taking existing stories and reframing them into something new, and there is nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, there is something so incredibly right about it that I've been thinking about how to describe what they do properly for the past couple of months. I think of it as pulling, kind of like taffy. Footnote, I would like to state for the record that I know bugger all about pulling taffy, but the visual matches what I'm thinking about. I haven't nailed this analogy yet. Still working on it. Like, stories are made of meaning, right? The richer the meaning, the more resonant the psychology from which that meaning sprang, and the more we return to those stories and retell them. I kind of imagine it as a cave, and the floor is kind of a thick membrane. You reach in, you pull out a chunk of meaning expressed in an ancient story like Little Red Riding Hood or the Beldum, and you drag it through the membrane, which is made of pieces of other stories, bits of meaning from the years, and you get a mix of meaning as you pull it out. Then you work it into a context that speaks to your era of human history, create more meaning with it. And as readers take that in, it goes back into this well of meaning. That's a sacred endeavor. It's important. It's not only not wrong to do it, it's part of our job as storytellers, as meaning makers. I'm still a little fuzzy on this idea. I don't quite have it down yet, but it feels right the more I think about it. If I ever get the chance to talk to Neil, I'll ask him about it. In the meantime, a lot of us are avoiding that well because we feel like everything we do has to be original, has to have a twist. We're worshiping at the wrong altar when we fetishize the surprise. Not to say that there isn't a distinct pleasure to be had from the shocker, but not to the extent that writers have been twisting their stories into pretzel shapes just to make the twist work, which often it doesn't. I'm not saying the surprise doesn't have value. It does. It's just that there are other values we don't access when we go into the cave of meaning, sigh, and say, well, that's been done, can't do that. Sure you can. 
As a matter of fact, we need you to. Everything, L. <laughs>